I'm Abby Kenny, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hey everyone, thank you for listening to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take one big story each week from the news and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. My name is Abby Kinney, and joined with me today is our regular co-host, my friend Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. Glad to have you back, Chuck. Hey, thanks, Abby. I uh, hope you're doing well in this deep freeze we're experiencing. I am surviving. <laughs> uh, doing well might be a little bit of an overstatement. I had uh, someone on the phone today who was complaining about how cold it was where they were, and they said it was like 55 degrees, and oh my gosh, it's it's just really, really cold. And I'm like, yeah, it was minus 25 when I got up this morning. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I wish I could complain that it's 55 degrees. <laughs> yeah. You know, if I were there, we'd be wearing shorts, so- Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you can get through February, you can get through anything. So we're we're almost through. It's a short month. It'll be March. Then it'll be April. By the time this comes out, all the women in my family, there's three of them, will have chocolates and bath stuff and a nice warm fire. And I think it will all work out. Yes. Nice Valentine's Day gifts. That sounds very, very nice. Well, so the article that we will be talking about is a really interesting one. It was published in Fairfield Citizen and written by Bob Christie, and it is entitled Arizona High Court Says Cities Must Benefit from Subsidies. So earlier this month, the Arizona State Supreme Court ruled that cities, counties, and the state legislature must ensure the public actually receives real benefit in exchange for subsidies the government provides to lure businesses in. If not, they are violating the state constitution's gift clause. So this decision came out of a five-year legal fight between the city of Peoria and Goldwater Institute, who initiated the charges over the city's use of direct payments to lure a private university into opening up a satellite campus in their entertainment district. The suburb northwest of Phoenix in 2015 offered to pay a private Christian university nearly $1.9 million if it opened a satellite campus, and they had to meet some kind of criteria such as increasing enrollment and exchange. The city also offered to reimburse nearly $740,000 to the landlord uh, to renovate the building that they were going to be located in. So in return, Huntington University promised to spend $2.5 million over three years to expand its programs at the new campus. According to reports, the city spent overall $2.6 million of taxpayer money for these efforts. The Goldwater Institute, who the organization that brought up these charges, argued that fundamentally, this is not what public money is for. And ultimately, the court ruled that these kinds of subsidies are illegal because anticipated economic benefit does not constitute a clear public benefit or a real return on investment. I uh, dug up the Arizona gift clause, and it says that neither the state nor any political subdivision shall ever give a loan or its credit 
in aid of or make any donation or grant by subsidy or otherwise to any individual association or corporation. So the way that I'm reading this, and I don't know if other states have a gift clause that is worded similarly, but it really does sound like the gift clause is truly an anti-subsidy clause. The only exception may be a contract to perform a government function, such as building a road, something like that. Anything else is considered a subsidy and so would be constitutionally prohibited. I feel like with articles like this, though, I always have to preface that I am not an attorney, but I do have a lot of fundamental questions about this topic. I wanted to first start, Chuck, by asking your perspective on what a strong town's approach to incentives and economic development looks like and whether or not you agree with this ruling that paying entities to spur economic growth is an improper use of taxpayer funding. Yeah, I love this ruling. I think it's fantastic. And the reason I think it's fantastic is a little bit different than what you have just said. I think let's put the idea of economic activity on the side because it's something I want to talk about because most economic development people think economic activity is the goal. And, you know, what this high court is saying and what the the lawsuit said is that economic activity is not the goal. Like it's relatively easy. I, I can accept a bribe as a public official and then say, well, that's economic activity because I'm going to go spend it on a yacht, you know, or I, we can just give money to my brother-in-law for his swimming pool and say, well, that's, that's economic activity. What they're saying is that there actually has to be, and this is what we talk about at Strong Towns, a return on investment. You actually have to get something back more than just, hey, transactions are happening. Your question to me was like, what would a strong town's approach to economic development look like? It would look more like a bank. It would look more like a partnership. If you are a bank and someone comes in to you and says, hey, I want to I borrow money, loan me some money. As a bank, you, you're looking at, yes, you know, do they have the capacity to pay, how much of a risk they are. But you're also looking at, you know, what are they doing? Is this an endeavor for something that that makes sense? Is there actually like a payoff here that's going to be able to cover this debt? And then we will make some money from that. If I came to you and said, Abby Kinney, I want to go into business with you. Here's my business plan. Here's my idea. You might say, Chuck, I really like you and I think you're smart and boy, I'd love to do this. But you're also going to say, if I'm going to give you an amount of money that's not insignificant for me, if I'm actually going to invest money and, and not just throw it away like a gift, I want to see some return. I want to know what money I am actually going to get back and what that is going to mean in terms of the amount of risk I'm taking on, the time frame it's going to take to get that back, how that compares to my initial investment. These are all common sense things. And I think people listening to this are like, yeah, no, no kidding, right? But the way cities operate today, for the most part, is an analogy for you and me would be if if you said, I will go into business with you, Chuck, and I'd say, well, Abby, I've got this great plan, you know, and you're like, okay, well, great. Here's the money. I'm not worried about what I'm going to get back or if you're going to pay me back or if I'm going to actually make any money off this myself. I'm just interested that you sell a lot of stuff and do a lot of cool things. That is a gift. That's not an investment. That's not a return. And that really is insane. Like, why would we, why would you do that? You wouldn't do that. Why do cities do that? I don't know. They do it all the time, all the time. Yeah. It's so common for cities to be doing this. And there's that question of, should cities be acting as a bank? Should they be giving gifts? 
what is justifiable when it comes to providing a public benefit in exchange for these kinds of things. You know, critics have argued in this case that since the university was private and it didn't give any direct public benefit to the residents of the city, such as a reduced tuition cost or public access to facilities, the city's incentives in this case violated the state's constitution. And something that I'm I'm kind of wanting to get your feedback on is what is considered a clear public benefit? Are there any situations where the city should be, you know, using taxpayer money to fund private investment that provides some kind of clear public benefit? And I understand um, part of that is could be building a road or something like that, but 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 it does seem like it is a fine line and it's not completely clear you know when you cross that line from it being a clear public benefit to something that may not be and and case by case it may be different so i i understand that there's some nuance there and i'm i'm curious what your thoughts are and if that line should be very strict when it comes to using taxpayer money to spur economic development i think the line should be very strict I don't know as I would impose it at the state level, at the court level. I don't know why a community wouldn't have a strict line for itself. I mean, to me, if I were going to have a subsidy policy, I would make it very strict in that I'd want to measure that benefit. So let me give you an example of, of where a subsidy could theoretically work. I think the cleanest one is like a brownfield site. You've got a site that has some contamination. There's There's something wrong with it that is keeping the marketplace from valuing it the way that you know you would like to see it valued as a community. And so you go in and you say, look, as a city, we're going to spend a million dollars cleaning up this site that will then allow the site to be developed and put on the market. There will be something built on there and we can estimate that that thing will be worth $5 million. And based on the tax receipts from that thing, it will take us 15 years to recoup that million dollars we invested. That's actually like a doable project. I'm just throwing out hypothetical numbers and I don't know if, you know, if that's the kind of numbers that we would see in most instances, but but that is an instance where a public subsidy can lead to a transaction that then in terms of the public balance sheet pays off in increased actual tax revenue in the future that is both measurable and directly tied to the action that the city takes. Let me give you an, another example. And this one isn't as crazy as the one in this lawsuit. I mean, the lawsuit, if you're giving a, a college, even if it were a public college, money just to stay there and open and enroll students and what have you, the benefit of that is so esoteric in terms of transactions, which we need to talk about before we're done here. Um, but let me give you one that is, I think, a little more we can get our mind wrapped around, and that is the Taco John's that I talk about all the time, the one here in my hometown. What I wrote in the book, uh, but I don't usually bring up in the talk because it just kind of muddies the water. The thing about the Taco John's is that they tore down a block of blighted properties and they replaced it with you know, one block development of this drive-through restaurant. And in the process, they devalued the property. The old blighted block was actually worth more than what the, the Taco John's is. What is not often brought up is that they were given a 26-year tax subsidy in order to do that. So the cost of tearing down those buildings, 
the cost of, uh, in a sense of like renovating the site, clearing it, getting it all ready. They treated it almost like a brownfield site, like a contaminated site. The cost of that was born by the developer, born by Taco John's, the people who developed Taco John's. And now they're being reimbursed for that with having 26 years of all, basically all the taxes they pay to the city returned to them in order to pay for that cost. That is similar to the first example I gave where the city makes an investment and then recoups the money. The problem is the city didn't sit down and actually run the numbers out and demonstrate that you know, there is a public benefit here. We're actually going to get more money back than what we spend. We're actually going to be better off financially. So I feel like there's a couple of gradations of this. The one is, you know, we're just gifting some, something to see transactions happening. And then another one is, this is a good investment or a bad investment. And, and I feel like the court verdict kind of opens the notion to cities making bad investments would also be something that you would ultimately question. Yeah. And when you have stewards of your community, you would hope that they know the difference between a good investment or a bad investment. And it it just seems like so often we're not asking these kind of fundamental questions about what do we as a community want to spend our collective money on. It's always been my general assessment that tax incentives ought to be used very sparingly and for very specific reasons. Unfortunately, we know that this is often not the case. And it is my understanding that tax incentives are really a big component of the overall economic development game these days. It's like one of the major tools that people are using. In this article, Peoria city officials said that the ruling may have a chilling effect on economic development statewide. And now, if this ruling only applied to an individual municipality, I want to agree with this kind of concern because cities are often using incentives as a way of uh, competing with other municipalities in one region. However, in this case, they're talking about the entire state of Arizona. So I, I really don't buy the idea that Arizona is suddenly not going to experience any economic development or growth due to the the state's inability to use tax incentives in in this way that they've been using them for so long. It's not like, you know, Phoenix is in a different boat. They are all being, I, I would think, held to the same standard after this kind of ruling. There could be some benefits that come out of pulling back economic incentives, I would think, as well, because they often really distort what a more free or natural market would yield, especially when it comes to like the true cost of land values and things of that nature. In some places, providing special deals and incentives has become so normal that it isn't always clear whether a particular project would have occurred without them. It's almost like calling the developer's bluff on these types of things and and just taking away the ability to have bad deals happen. I'll be curious to see whether or not that actually does slow down any economic development in the state of Arizona. Yeah, my guess it would be none, zero. It, as I'm reading this article for the first time, I just was laughing because I can picture the astonished look on economic development officials' faces. I, I've seen this myself where I'm like, yeah, what's your return on investment? And they kind of look at you like, what, huh? What, like what, that's not a word we use. What's the, what amount of money, you know, you gave them a million dollars in subsidy. What amount of money did you get back? And they look at you like, that's not even 
like, wh why would you ask that question? And I can see there being some confusion because this is not often how many of them them work. So that I can see them saying, yeah, like you're, you're taking the tools away from us. And I'm like, yeah, that's really good because you're not using them very well. Let me delve into this idea of transactions because I do think this is one of the complicating things that is confusing for people. There's a saying that is often thrown out there when we start talking about economics, that cities and states are not like uh, families and the federal government is not like a family. And we've talked about this here in the past, you know, the idea that, well, you know, we have to balance our budget. Why shouldn't the federal government have to balance theirs? And we can get our minds wrapped around that because that, there's some common sense in that, but there's a lot of theories and a lot of economic approaches that reject that and say, no, the federal government can print their own money. It's a larger economic system. There's a lot of capital flow. It, it doesn't function that way. Okay, fine. I don't want to have that debate. But when we get to the city level, it's not true. Cities function very much like families. They have to balance their budget. When they take on debt, they have to pay it back. They can't just borrow more debt to pay off their last debt. They can't print money to make their debt go away. Cities actually do have real financial constraints the same way that, that businesses do, the same way that families do. One of the problems with looking at the federal economy as a situation where we can just print whatever money we need or borrow whatever money we need and not have to pay it back, and, and it's all about flow, is that you start to measure success in terms of things like GDP. And GDP is just a measure of the number of transactions in an economy. If I sell you a book and you sell me a DVD, those are two transactions in the economy. If I loan you a book and you loan me a DVD and then we swap them back at the end, we've still like consumed the same amount of media, but because money didn't change hands, that's not a transaction that doesn't count. And so we've created this macro economy that values flow and looks at and measures success in terms of transactions. Go back now to the local level in Peoria, Arizona. What the local economic development group was saying is that we're going to put money into this university. There's going to be more students here, more professors here, more stuff going on, and there's going to be more flow in our economy. There's going to be more money like flowing around, sloshing around, and more people doing stuff. You hear this a lot of times when people are trying to subsidize Walmart or trying to subsidize you know, the next big box store or strip mall or what have you. It's like, if we can just create a lot of transactions on our economy, it will work out really well. Well, if you measure things the way they do at the federal government, yes. If you measure things the way that we have to at the city level, flow does nothing for you. It really doesn't. What does something for you is capturable wealth or capturable transactions. If you have all the flow in the world, like say you're Istanbul and you just have like massive amounts of flow coming through your ports all the time, but you don't tax any of it. You don't tax any wages. The only tax you have is property tax. If that's your only tax system and your property values are going down because of the flow, the flow does no good for you. It does nothing for you in terms of allowing you to pay your bills. And I think that's what most economic you know, development approaches don't recognize is that the values of the state government, the values of the federal government, which very much benefit from flow, are not the same values or the same approach that local governments would have where we benefit from real wealth creation as opposed to just mere flow. 
if you and I both borrow a million dollars and spend it next year and we're a million dollars poorer, the federal government will be better off and the state government will be better off because they will tax all those transactions. But if that means we default on our house and it goes into foreclosure and the property values drop 20% and we don't pay our local taxes, the city government will be way worse off because the city government doesn't benefit really from flow. They benefit from wealth creation. Does, Does that difference make sense? Yeah. And this is just such a fascinating discussion. And I'm so curious to see what how this actually ends up impacting Arizona and also what it means for other states. I mean, it it seems like other states must have a similar gift clause. And I don't know if they've come into question in the past, but I'm curious if this is going to impact how how, how incentives are used and what tools cities can use to attract business. And, you know, it seems like we ought to be rethinking how we are using tax dollars, like in general, I mean, really at all levels, but especially at the community level when we we really don't seem to have a really clear policy in, in most cities about what we ought to be spending our money on and what actually produces a return on investment and what is actually going to help us build wealth at the local level, at the family level, what's going to actually benefit the people who are living in communities. And it's, I see my own city, you know, giving all kinds of deals to, to developers and, and for projects that really don't seem to have a clear public benefit. And so that this article really, it really struck me as a case that, I'd be curious what it would mean if it were applied here in Missouri. I think it's interesting because in Minnesota, we do have uh, not a total gift ban, but there are limitations. Uh, like, you know, the, the local government can't just give money indiscriminately to businesses or nonprofits just, you know, for them to use because it will create economic activity. There's some parallel things here in the realm of public-private partnerships. What actually does the public get back in terms of real return on investment for joining in a public-private partnership. A lot of times these are things like, we'll give up 20 years of tolls on a road if you give us cash today that we can spend on our budget. And you know, these are like credit card type returns for the investors. It really, I think, hopefully has the impact of making local economic development authorities, local city councils do do the thing that they should be doing already, which is actually running the math and the numbers and and asking a question, not, you know, can we get this person to come to town? How many jobs will it create? Uh, How many ribbon cuttings can we have? How, you know, cool is this going to be? But actually asking the real hard question of for every dollar we spend, how many dollars do we get back? when do we get them back? And what is the risk that that's not going to happen? Like how much risk are we taking on as part of that? And if we just ask those three questions, I would say 90% plus of the subsidies we do right now, we would not do. But there's a lot of projects that are fantastic projects that we would do that are currently sidelined because you know, they, they're not as splashy. They're not as, uh, they don't have as much bling or cachet to them, or they don't have a big developer backing them. Right. Right. Fascinating. 
Well, I think we will leave it at that today. But before we conclude, we are going to do the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we've been up to, anything we've been reading, watching, listening to, just anything that's been captivating our attention. So, Chuck, how have you been? I've been warm. <laughs> we it's funny because we did have our coldest day of the year this past weekend and for two days my furnace never went on uh because we were burning wood and i love just like a nice wood stove in the winter i was thinking i wasn't going to share this because I, I know people get very uptight about this topic but i'm reading a book called apocalypse never by a guy named michael schellenberger i'm enjoying it and i wanted to read it it's a little bit of confirmation bias I'm one of these people who would like to think of themselves and as, as an environmentalist, but when I listen to people who are also describe themselves as environmentalists, I, you know, feel like I I have less in common with them. When I hear people talk about climate change, I'm like, yeah, gosh, I really wish I could, you know, listen to you, but you seem crazy to me. Yet I believe that climate change is real and is happening. This, this book is a, a little bit of the kind of pragmatist approach to environmentalism. Uh, here is what is happening. Here is uh, where we should be concerned. And then here's where the uh, the hype and the hysteria kind of takes over and kind of blinds us to what some very pragmatic policies would be to, to address these things that are very real and we have very, you know, reasonable concerns over. So I'm liking the book. And, and like I said, it's a little bit of confirmation bias for me because I tend to not uh, value the the uh, the radical approach in a lot of these realms. I also can get blinded sometimes by by that rejection, and so it's good to kind of go through and get a good recitation of you know here are the real concerns and here are the things that we need to take very seriously, and and here's how we should be thinking about these things. Yeah, I always think about, you know, behind every big political topic, there's like a quiet person who actually understands what's going on, um, who who understands the fuller picture. I mean, I, I feel like I experienced that this year when the topic of like of zoning and zoning reform all of a sudden became this big political fight at the federal level. And when that happens and you actually understand that conversation, you can see that they like people just distort it. They're picking their facts um, in a strategic way um, to try to cultivate some narrative. And you see that happen on all sides, every, you know, for every type of agenda, whatever. But it, it is something where, you know, that that's that tends to be the way I think about a lot of these things because I would consider myself an environmentalist as well you know, when it comes to things, the, the doomsday scenario, I always remember that there's there's some quiet, super smart person who probably understands the nuance of all these topics in a way that is not being portrayed in kind of the, the popular theater that we see. Right. Well, and I, I do feel like it's important to recognize that as insiders, and we're all insiders to something, we do have our own blinders and our own distorted view and an and outside perspective and an outside critique by even by non-experts is often very helpful and insightful. When you have the intersection of things with politics, I, I'm fond of saying, you know, sewage plus water equals sewage. Um, politics <laughs> plus science equals politics. It is very difficult, especially for someone who 
you know, if the hashtag was, I believe science, I'm like, yeah, I believe science. I have a, a logical scientific mind, but my gosh, when, when you have politics plus science, you don't tend to get science. You tend to get politics. Science is a method, right? It's something yeah. that's like an action. So it's not like a conclusion, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which, it's a so process. I always, yeah, it's a thought process. So that I always find that term, I get what people are saying um, and I'm all for it. You know, sometimes when I hear that, it's like, well, like science is a, an, an action. It's, it's a, you know, a cycle of criticism and, and inquiry and renewal. I mean, it, it's a cycle. It's not necessarily a conclusion that yeah, we all well, decide. <laughs> right. The first thing science does is it never quashes debate. Right. I mean, that, yeah. that's the that's the thing that is astounding to me is that the the bedrock of science is is questions. Tell me what you're up to. You're you're there freezing in your house with your dog. Yeah, I don't have like any media to share because it is so cold this week. Our focus has been so. Let me start off by saying before it got very cold, we were working in the basement. We started by cleaning it up. Uh, we got a shot back and cleaned up all the spider webs. We repainted the cinder block walls and we built a workbench so that we can use the area as a workshop and storage. It was really, really nice. But unfortunately, we are now having issues. And I know, Chuck, you probably won't have much sympathy for me since you're way up north in Minnesota, but we are having such an incredibly cold week here in Kansas City. And I have been cooped up at home all this week dealing with our water pipes. We have this ongoing battle. I feel like it's like whack-a-mole trying to deal with these water pipes. Different ones freeze up at different times. And so that has consumed a lot of my free time this week. We, we have this unfinished stone basement that's very poorly insulated. So we've been working to put up insulation and dethaw our water pipes like all week. And also jumping onto the environmentalist <laughs> discussion, I, I'm using so much water from dripping these pipes and I'm very sad about it. And and I'm also going to be really sad when I get that bill. So our basement has been taking up a lot of our free time this week for better and worse. I'm sorry. It, you know, it, it is one of the benefits of living in an extreme climate, like, like Minnesota can be at times is that you do kind of have these things like they break early and you fix them. Like you get, they get vetted. I am sympathetic to people who are not used to the cold, who have to deal with this in that way. So I'm sorry. It's never fun to be dealing with, uh, pipes and old houses and things that <sighs> freeze. And we, you know, we hear the people who like their gas line froze into their house and now they don't have heat. And those are not fun situations, especially in the extremes. Don't even bring up the gas line. If that <laughs> happened, that would be such a nightmare. We are currently, we bust out the kerosene heater. I don't know if you have one of those, but we are going to use that to try to dethaw our basement and get some of these pipes moving so that we can at least drip water. There's like two more faucets that won't run that we need to, and, and conveniently, they're directly over the electrical box. So I don't know if that's like a building code issue, but yeah, we need to we need to fix it. So that's what we'll be doing this weekend. It, it's supposed to be like negative 14 
degrees tomorrow. So good times. If you're negative 14, I can't imagine what we will be. So <laughs> I, I can't imagine. Hey, I, it, I it's, it won't last long. It'll be done soon. And then we'll be back to, uh, you know, mild temperatures. I promise. Yeah. I've been looking, looking on Zillow at real estate and Arizona and Florida. <laughs> you and everybody else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Well, thank you so much, Chuck, for taking the time to chat with me today. Great conversation. Thank and you. thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. See you, Chuck. Bye-bye, Abby.